We're the Pragmatic Doulas. This is a podcast where we talk all about birth and other interesting things. Birth may be a goddess, but she doesn't want to be worshipped. She wants to be respected. She doesn't want incense. She wants common sense. All right. Hello. Hi. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Here we are again. And uh, happy. We're recording on Monday, which is which is unusual for us. But sometimes when we have guests, we need to accommodate our guests. So that's why we are recording on Monday. How's everybody doing briefly? Uh, I'm okay. I mean, I'm, I'm back. I don't know where my brain is for most of this, but um, I got a pretty busy week of funeral planning and estate dealing with and trustees and whatnot. So not really looking forward to this week but it's got to be done so that's a lot of that's a lot of non-doula related adulting there yeah so not really looking forward to so anyways by the by december everything should be done and i can start living my life again so that's what i have that toe yeah how's your toe Well, you guys would have found this terribly hilarious. I know I did, or maybe panicked. I don't know if it was panic laughter or not, but as it was coming up the stairs last night, after dropping my husband off at the airport, I tripped coming up the stairs with my cast and sprawled out and just held on for dear life onto that banister. Like I cannot break anything else this week. I don't have time. We we really shouldn't be letting you out of the house. We need to get you <laughs> tested for something. Why did you falling ear issue what the hell some sort of sensory issue center of gravity i don't know tripping over my own feet but i made it to my bedroom and here i am today so all is well and she said she was gonna buy a new computer too i am i I have to leave the house it is my goal for today to go buy a new computer Please do it. Please. We beg of you. Just do it. I have children younger than your computer. This is how old your computer is. <laughs> it is time. Uh, how about uh, you, Sue? What you got going on with your, your rocker book club? Oh, it was so, it was, I mean, you know what? I take this thing seriously. Okay. So when we read a book and it had like a rock and roll kind of theme. Uh, and so then the host of the book club said, let everybody draw, dress up like a rock star for book club. So I take that shit seriously. So I blew out my hair. This is why my hair looks like this today. Blew out my hair, did all this stuff. And only two of us did it. Those stupid, those suckers, my cousins suck. They all, nobody did it except me and my, uh, my other friend. So we had, we got some great pictures and we're the only cool ones in that whole damn place. But, you know, book club is always fun. So, yeah, I got home after midnight, which, like, for me, that's, like, big time Saturday night party. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was good. It was it was fine. And uh, we have a guest today. We're going to do a formal introduction in a minute. But just quickly, briefly, her name is Sabrina. How are you doing today? Like, right now, Sabrina? Doing great. Thanks for asking. Um, thanks for having me, by the way. I appreciate it. 
Welcome. We are very excited to have you here. And um, before we get jumping into the meat of our conversation, I am going to do a land acknowledgement. So Wonderful. I'm reading the land acknowledgement that I read last week because it was so good. And um, I just pulled it up quickly and I have to change some of it, like I mentioned before, because I am literally paraphrasing what the people at fireflycreativewriting.com say um, to make it work for us. So we, the Pragmatic Doulas, are incredibly grateful to uh, live in this place called Toronto to do the work that we do to raise our families and to live on. We feel uh, all of that gratitude and we also grapple with it. Our team, the Pragmatic Doulas, is made up of settlers, immigrants, and their descendants here on this land as a result of a long and continued process of violence and colonization towards Indigenous people. We're committed to that grappling, to decolonizing our space and our processes, and to explore ways to work in solidarity with Indigenous peoples who call this place home. We want to start by sharing the names of the Indigenous people whose land our podcast records on. These are the Wendat, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Haudenosaunee, Confederacy and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation and the Métis Nation. We also want to be clear that the treaties with European settlers aren't the first on this land. This territory was and still is the subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Ojibwe and allied nations to live in peace and cooperation on this land. The Toronto Purchase, also known as Treaty 13, which deeded this land from indigenous people to the Europeans was and is unethical for all kinds of reasons. The amount of land claimed by Europeans exceeded the land in the agreement. Communication about the nature of land ownership was ambiguous and it's not clear whether indigenous people even actually signed the final contract or a blank contract that was later written up. And while we remember this heartbreaking chapter in our history, we also know that it's not history at all. Indigenous people, in our community and beyond continue to face violence and obstacles placed by colonialism, including the Canadian government's attempts to assimilate Indigenous people into dominant culture, the racism that exists in Canada today, and even basic human rights issues like lack of clean water or affordable food. Uh, this wouldn't be complete without acknowledging also the resilience of the Indigenous peoples, their cultures, languages, and communities. This is a history and political climate filled with strength, survival, resilience, creativity, and power. If you are also a settler on this land and you feel moved to take action towards reconciliation, there are many things, many pathways that you can, that you can take to help you. Uh, and the first thing that you can do is to please read and acknowledge the Truth and Reconciliation, Com Truth and Reconciliation Commission document. <sighs> And uh, there's more stuff to learn. If you go on fireflycreativewriting.com and read the entirety of this page, you will get lots of ideas. They have lots of resources and things like that on there that you can um, that you can incorporate into your into your life. And there you go. It's a little bit longer than the land acknowledgement that we usually use, the one that's um, done up by the city of Toronto. But I think it's better. It's more thorough, and it's just better. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So as I just mentioned a little while ago, we have a special guest with us today. But before I introduce her, let's talk about what the topic is 
What are we talking about today? And why do we have Sabrina here with us? Anybody want to tell the people or shall I? Well, I think it's a little bit of a giveaway considering we're having who everyone knows as nurse Sabrina at St. Mike's hospital. Everyone knows. <laughs> everyone knows. All of our she, listeners in Texas must know. They don't they they know her. She's so famous. <laughs> <laughs> you realize like 60% of our listeners are from the United States, right? Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah. Got that American vibe, I guess. I don't know. What the hell's up with that? <laughs> Anyways, today on the Pragmatic Duelist podcast, we are speaking about nurses. This is a topic we haven't really covered officially, right? So this is a first first time giving a stab at it. Nurses, especially for those doulas who do uh, support clients in hospital, you know the essential role that labor and delivery nurses play in the uh, birth experiences of your clients. And so we decided that let's bring somebody on to talk about it. Let's discuss this with somebody who is literally, she's not a retired nurse. She's not a, a used to be nurse. She's literally, she's doing this thing right now. Is this your day off, Sabrina? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> she, she's, she's taking time out of her, her scarce and precious days off to speak with us about her role as a delivery labor and delivery nurse. And we also want to weave in there the relationship between nurses and doulas, because we know that it can be fraught with tension, challenge, worry, concern, but it also can be an amazing and wonderful collaboration um, of working together and so on, which is, that's the goal, right? That is the goal. So that's what we're going to be doing here today. And so let us all welcome Sabrina Tamara to us. Thank you. Round of applause, round of applause, round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> I to cheer. Um, so Sabrina, can you just tell us a little tiny bit about yourself? Like you can get as deep and as personal as you want. There is no such thing as TMI on this podcast share share away but we especially want to know about your journey to being a nurse uh why labor and delivery and not you know like podiatry or something Mm -hmm. why did you choose labor and delivery and uh yeah let's start there go ahead um so i have been working for just over 17 years as a labor and delivery nurse get out of here you're 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 barely over 17 You started work when you were like five years old? I'm like the Doogie Hauser of nursing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, I wish that was all true. No, I um, I consolidated um, at the site that I'm working at right now. So technically January, I would have been there for 18 years if you count my studentship. Um, and I've always had a passion to do this. Uh, my mom used to do midwifery and nursing uh, when she was in England. And she never really got a chance to complete that. And I always kind of felt like I wanted to finish that for her. Um, The story she always told me about being a nurse and uh, midwifery, it just, it really resonated with me. It was something I always wanted. It it was so intriguing. I always wanted to be a part of that. And I always felt like being in a delivery would be such a privilege. It would probably be the most exciting thing in the hospital. I think when you think about being in a hospital, you don't typically think of being a healthy person. You're usually there because you need help. Um, And so I feel like labor and delivery is one of those places that's actually fun and exciting. And for the most part, a pretty happy environment. 
Um, so that's kind of how I landed myself there. And I've just never really wanted to do anything else. I, of course, night shifts can be grueling. And there are times where I think that maybe I should want, should do something clinic like or daytime setting. Um, but then I just, I love my patients. I love the setting. I just, I think this is my calling. So I'll mm -hmm. stick it out until I can't anymore physically. <laughs> that That's awesome. That's really cool that you're continuing the legacy that your mom, I love that. Is your mom here in Canada or is she in England? She is. No, she's here in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, she actually just retired in April. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What's the most challenging besides night shifts, which to, hey, listen, girl, I can relate. <laughs> yeah. I can relate. Uh, when I'm there at 3 a.m. Um, at a birth, I see you all at the nurse's station. Everybody looks so awake. And I'm like, they've got some kind of answer to this because I'm dying. <laughs> I'm like in the, I'm in the kitchen and that the, you know, in the kitchenette warming up a heating bag or something like that and thinking, oh my God, let me just close my eyes until the microwave beeps. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are all perky. And uh, so enough respect to all of you guys. Um, so the, the one other question I wanted to ask you about besides the overnight stuff is what do you find to be the most challenging part of being a labor and delivery nurse? Um, well, right now, I think it's COVID. Um, but in general, um, I would probably say that staffing um, and patient acuity, I work in a center where it, there are a lot of high-risk patients. And typically, most of our patients get one-to-one -one care depending on the stage that they're in uh, at their labor stage. So I think that that's a little bit tricky sometimes when you have a certain amount of nurses who are on a shift and each patient, sometimes you surpass, you have more patients than you have nurses, right? It's just the way it goes. Um, so I think what's challenging is trying to make sure that everybody is safely looked after and that the nurses are also safe in the process of looking after their patients. So I always found that staffing was a big challenge. You almost feel guilty when you're told to go for a break and you're leaving things behind for your colleague and you know that they're probably tired because they just had a delivery or they just did an admission. Um, so staffing and just patient acuity and patient flow has always been a bit of a challenge, I feel. Um, and I think just in healthcare in general, right? Like there's always staffing issues. There's always more patients than there are nurses. Um, with respect to COVID, I feel like right now, especially, and I don't know if it's just because people are tired of it because it's been a few years now, um, but patients just aren't that diligent about keeping their masks on. Um, they're just irritated. I think the fact that they're there to have a baby kind of makes them feel like they're exempt from following COVID protocols. Um, and I can appreciate that um, because you're not coming in to have a wound dressing change. Um, and I can only imagine how hard it would be to push a baby out with a mask on, absolutely. Um, but the fact is, is that those labor breaths that they're giving out are aerosolizing breaths. <laughs> I don't wanna be exposed to that. Um, and it's also really hard because we're looking after patients that do have COVID and then we're coming into a healthy mom's room that doesn't have COVID and she doesn't have a mask on and now she's exposed herself. So it's really challenging to have to constantly remind patients that there is still a pandemic going on and no one is really safe, whether you're vaccinated or not. And you're bringing a newborn into this world that's not safe. So mask up, 
<laughs> that's a really, really big challenge right now. That's probably my biggest beef right now. It's definitely one of the biggest questions that I always get when we do sort of the hospital talk and, and um, you know, show the video and, and whatnot. And so I was like, do I have to have my mask on the entire time? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, when the staff comes in, if you have to pull it down, when the staff comes in, you got to put it back up. Okay. When they're there, it's for your protection, for everybody's protection. But yeah, they're like, what? Yeah. Like, yeah. Sorry. They're, you're giving birth in a hospital during a pandemic. The pandemic's yeah. not over just because you think it is. Yeah. Crazy. Yes. I, I think a lot of times people, once they step into that, that, that bubble where they're in labor, they step into that place in the hospital. They forget that, Hey, this is the same as like when you're at the grocery store. This is the same. It's nothing's different from when you're in any other indoor place. As a matter of fact, it's probably worse because you're going to be like huffing and puffing and, and breathing deeply and so on and in close contact with people, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, that's, I can totally understand that. Yeah. This is where I imagine as a nurse, your years of learning many different types of communication skills with such a variety of, of clients who come through there really must be coming into play like the creative communication to get people to you know feel like they're being supported when you're asking them to put on their mask as opposed to anything that feels like it's coming at them like it- absolutely absolutely I, I find it's a little bit sad when I have to tell the patient that it's for their protection and then they're agreeable to putting it on because if it's just for me they don't really care no. I mean I know that it's their moment and all of that but I also have a family that I have to go home to. I've also been in quarantine twice and I don't want to do it a third time. So, like, but they don't need to hear that and they don't want to hear that. So when I tell them, you know, we, we look after patients that have fever. So it's really for your safety for you to wear this mask and it suddenly goes on. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I should have said that a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, um, Oh, you guys have any other questions you want to ask Sabrina about her role as a nurse? Um, well, I, of course, I wanted to dive into um, what, what are the biggest thoughts, <laughs> just to get right into the meat, what are the biggest misconceptions, would you say, about, because I know you, Sabrina, I know I've, I, you can only see my face here in a picture because, well, for other computer related issues, but Uh, We have worked together many times and worked together well. And often when I'm coming in with a client who is wanting more of a physiological birth, you're who's assigned to us. And there's always great communication and stuff. But I'm wondering, what are the biggest misconceptions or thoughts around people who are coming in uh, with doulas for support? Um, I think wait, 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 wait one second. I just want to interrupt and and do a (laughs) pre-question to your question. So, so. Is it actually true that nurses are assigned to patients depending on their situations? Yeah, that's my question too. (laughs) Yeah, really? No, No, it's just a random selection of who's up next for a patient, who's available. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. So it just is then like a coincidence that Steph Steph sees that you're the one who's in there with um, with the people who are wanting sort of straightforward physiologic births. Now I was told once at Sinai that um, the nurses would come in and be able to look at the, at the list 
and decide who they wanted to be assigned. No, this was Sinai, um, who they wanted to be assigned to. And a, and a nurse told me once, you know, any of the ones that had doulas on the <laughs> list, she goes, I never picked those. But then she also turned around and said, yeah, but you, yeah, I do you. Yeah, you can. <laughs> I'd be with you. I'm like, okay, thanks. All right. So now you have question, sorry. <laughs> I guess it is just a, a coincidence, but so usually, you know, you hit triage first before heading in and almost always in triage, you're asked, what are your plans for, um, for pain management. And I just found, especially this, there was this one year where I was doing a lot of St. Mike's and I felt like every time I came in with a client who said, um, I just want to see how, how far I can go as we're coming in, not asking for an IV or an, or an epidural prep. Um, I kept getting Sabrina. So I thought that was my assumption. I was like, Oh, okay. She's looking to just keep going. And we got Sabrina who like came in with like a ball or a peanut ball, always came in with something like, you need anything? (laughs) Um, it's funny that you mentioned this assignment thing. I feel like that is a selling feature for a lot of nurses at Sinai. I've never worked at Sinai and we don't do our assignments that way at my hospital. Um, you show up on shift and there's a board with all the patients' names on there, um, has a little blurb about what's going on with them in terms of their gravity, their parity, you know, if they have any issues in the pregnancy or during their labor, if they have an epidural and your name is next to whoever the charge nurse has assigned you to, um, And I don't particularly have a preference for any type of patient. Um, And I I always am surprised when nurses do. I mean, obviously people are burnt out, people are tired. Um, Who doesn't want an easy delivery? I mean, that's a dream, right? To have just a beautiful, straightforward delivery. But you work in a high-risk facility, like you should be prepared to take on a challenge. So for me, it doesn't doesn't really matter to me if a patient says that they want to go naturally without any medication or... Um, they're definitely going to want an epidural or they're scared or whatever, like whoever you are, I'm happy to look after you and I want to give you the best experience. So that's just kind of where I'm at with, and it, it, maybe it is just total coincidence that we keep falling upon each other. (laughs) Beautiful. That's a chef's kiss answer. I will support, (laughs) I will support whatever birth experience you want. Make sure you have the best experience possible. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I think a lot of people, not just patients that have doulas or midwives, just a lot of patients come in. I mean, everyone's scared, right? Whether it's your first baby or your fifth baby, it's scary. You're pushing a human out of your body. It's, it's the unknown. Um, you know, I get patients that came in for a labor the first time ended up having an emergency C-section and then they come in for a book section and they're way more nervous that time than they are the first time around because they know what to anticipate. Um, and they haven't slept all night, but I feel like I think that if most of our patients come in, I'm not sure what they want to do. A lot of them say, I'll see how it goes. And I'm not really sure uh, where this idea of if I don't get an epidural, um, or I, I guess I should say it the other way. I feel like a lot of patients that have decided that they don't want an epidural and then the labor gets to be too much or something happens and they need to get an epidural they almost feel like they failed themselves. And I never really yeah. understood that. I don't know where that comes from. So I- Not coming from that. my class, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's somewhere on, on the internet, on yes. a birth plan or something that says you have to keep going and it's not okay to have pain management. Or if you have a C-section, then you didn't have a natural delivery. 
Um, and it, it goes the same with breastfeeding. I feel like there's a lot of pressure that if you have to give formula because your baby's blood sugar is low, you somehow failed or your body failed. And I feel like the culture around what's considered natural needs to change. Oh my gosh. Have you been listening to our podcasts? Because we talk I about- I don't even use that word. I don't yeah, like I using that word. Do not use that word at all. And I think that it comes- these are still leftovers from the 60s and 70s when the huge natural birth movement came around, like long before the internet came around. You mm. had a lot of people. And to be fair, those movements came at, were a reaction to the horrible treatment that, that people were getting in their birth situations where they're being coerced and, and, and forced in many ways. Like my mom has a horrible story from giving birth in the sixties and seventies. So, so there was that. And then there was this huge natural birth movement that said that you should, you can give birth on your own, you know, really empowering. So there's a lot of good that came out of that movement, but there's remnants of it now that say, well, it's actually the ideal way to give birth. And that's not true. Yeah, that is absolutely not the ideal way to give birth is how you want to give birth. Um, That ends up with you feeling positive about the experience. And so now there are some of us, some of us doulas who are trying to set it straight so that we have a balance, right? So people who want to squat in a field of lavender, totally (laughs) do that, do it. We'll be there for you. And those of you who want an elective C-section simply because that's what you want, we're there for you too. And everybody in between, because that's how personal and individualized birth should be. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. And the internet, of course, anything you start, the internet can spread it like wildfire. So yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Sorry, Stephanie, what was your original, what was your original? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so I was wondering, well, I was going to say, are there any preconceptions like in a general sense about clients who are coming in working with doulas, but I'm going to say, of course there are preconceptions about it. So I'm wondering what are they, have you found that any of them are actually grounded in anything? Um, and of course I'm wondering what can, what can doulas do to facilitate a really positive birth experience with any staff who might have some not so great preconceived notions or poor experiences? Right. That's a really good question. Um, I do feel like a lot of nurses, physicians, just staff in general that are working in the hospital do typically tend to find patients that have doulas have a very organic birth plan. They want minimal medical intervention. Um, mostly that translates to they don't want to have an epidural. They don't want to have a C-section. They don't want oxytocin. Um, and I can appreciate that birth plan Um, And I can understand where some of the fears or anxieties come from around augmenting a labor or getting an epidural, like whether you're, you have a doula or not, whether you had an idea about how you wanted things to go or not, having a needle in your back is scary regardless. So I feel like anybody could have a reservation, whether (laughs) the labor is really painful or not. It's scary to think about having an epidural or having oxytocin. Um, But I feel like, um, you guys have a relationship with your clients well before we meet them. And mm-hmm. so it's hard for us to get their trust in just a moment of time. 
like they're entering the scene, our environment now, right? Like they've entered our environment where we have all this medical management, we have IVs, we have all the things that maybe they didn't want or they weren't prepared for and we don't know them at all. And you've already had a discussion with them about things that you can offer them in terms of labor support. And I feel like where things can get maybe a little bit challenging is when the labor isn't going the way the patient envisioned it going. And I think that maybe that's where some of the challenges occur. And I don't think, I personally don't think that this has anything to do with the relationship between the nurse and the doula or the doctor and the doula, I, no matter who's coming in, whether you're a labor support person, a family member, a partner, you're still part of that team, right? Like, I'm not going to uh, encourage you to get an epidural. I'm not going to encourage you to get oxytocin. I'm going to tell you what the recommendation is from the physician based on the labor or the, the lack of progress. Um, or what the fetal heart rate is telling me, but I feel like the clients typically tend to trust their doulas a lot more than they trust the nurses, and for good reason, because they don't know us. So I think that sometimes, I'm not really sure what doulas can do to help that smooth out a bit, but I feel like maybe they can encourage their clients to ask the nurses lots and lots of questions, because I feel like we have to prove ourselves. Like, I have to prove, my, first of all, I always get patients asking me, oh, have you been working here long? <laughs> How long have you been working here? That's like the first question they want to know. Um, or do you have kids? Because I feel like if, if I push out a baby, then suddenly I'm relatable to them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how long have you been working here? And maybe it's because I, I don't look like I've been working there very long. Um, so there's that whole trust thing that I kind of have to prove myself to them that I do know what I'm doing. And I'm here to do, give you the best care that I possibly can that's safe. And I want to work with you so that you can walk away from this, no matter how this goes down with the best experience. So you look back in this and say, you know what? Yeah, I had a stat C-section. It was a code OB, but I have a healthy baby. I'm okay. And all of my care providers were amazing and they relieved my anxieties. And I walked away feeling really good about this and not traumatized. Like that's the goal. And I feel like because, and the, the same thing goes with midwifery patients. We get transfers of care and they've been with their midwives all through their antenatal care and then enter the nurse who's just there to give them an epidural or is transferring care because now suddenly it's a C-section and it's not straightforward. And I have to win them over in a, such a short period of time. And I don't have any preconceived notions about what this patient's like just because they showed up with a doula. Like to me, I feel like a doula is the same as a family member who's coming in with your best interest, who's coming in to look after you and give you the best support that they can possibly give you. And a lot of patients I've had recently haven't had any family members in the city and all they have are their doula. So yes. that is your family, right? And you're going to follow up with them after they delivered. I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I, I think that, yes, a lot of patients come in with doulas that don't want medical management. And I think that's where it's a little bit tricky because we're coming in and we do have to auscultate with a Doppler. Sometimes we, we say, you know what, the baby's heart rate is really high and I have to start an IV and it's not part of their plan. And I think that's where things can become a little bit challenging. So I'm not sure where you guys can kind of smooth that out, but that's what I find to be the most challenging. 
So there's, so there's two things here when I hear you say this, and I do feel, I strongly have felt this for a very long time and having been a doula trainer and having taken a training, you know, 15 years ago that, um, you know, didn't, didn't sort of, uh, promote this is that you do see on the internet, there's a lot of doulas out there that are really sort of anti-medical staff that Mm -hmm. are anti-staff, anti-doctor, anti-nurse. And I sit there and I watch these and I'm like, oh my God, but we don't know the nurse that they're going to get. We don't know the doctor that they're going to get. And we can't paint the, even if they had an experience with a nurse who was terrible, because let's Mm -hmm. be honest, every profession has great ones and not so great ones. Absolutely. But it, it hurts my heart, especially having worked at a hospital for, you know, over 10 years and, and having, you know, kind of having a little soft spot in my heart for this hospital and the people that work there and knowing what they're going through. And it kind of hurts me when I, when I hear them say, you know, oh, well, you know, what do I do when I have a nurse that does blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, like in 15 years, I've never had that happen. Like what the hell is going on here? Like Mm -hmm. what is going on? So for me working with clients, it's like, it's, as you say, you know, especially in my classes, it's like, look, okay, this, this is the stuff that you could come across IVs Doppler or like uh, fetal monitoring, blah, blah, blah. These are the benefits. These are the risks. These are the questions you want to ask, ask as many questions as you need to ask. That's what they're there for. If the doctor's not there, ask the nurse, they will likely be able to answer that question for you. And if they can't, they're going to get the doctor in to answer that question for you because irregardless of how the birth goes, how you, the experience that you have is huge. And if you feel like you were involved in the process, asking the questions, giving approval for whatever happens, that's huge. And that can lead you to, even if it is, you know, a sudden cesarean birth, that will still lead you to a good experience. And that's what we're looking for, right? As a yeah. doula, that's what I'm looking for. The hospital staff is healthy, baby, healthy mom. Mm-hmm. Got that. Yeah. My role is a healthy experience. And I can help you with that by encouraging you to ask questions, by encouraging you to be a part of the process, by encouraging you to not just have birth run you over like a Mack truck. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, so then the second part that I was going to say is it goes to that same question that uh, Dr. Nirmala posted on Twitter <laughs> about how birth classes do not talk about um, the negative the negative side of birth. And they're always just promoting, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, excuse me, Dr. Nirmala, that isn't quite what the way it goes um, in the classes that are taught for your hospital. But yeah, I mean, maybe we need to start encouraging, you know, there's always this negative you see online for people going, oh, don't take a hospital class. They're just going to be the worst. And they're going to just teach you how to be a good patient. And oh, also on. because don't take a hospital class because they're taught by nurses. nurses. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. like, that is what we hear that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just going to be towing the party line and uh, all your choices are going to be taken away and so on. Sorry, Kim, go ahead. Yeah. And it's like, uh, nope. <laughs> like there are definitely good hospital classes out there. Sigmax mm-hmm. is one of them. Um, but there is also, you know, there's, there's also people that are going to be teaching classes that are not necessarily affiliated with the hospital that are going to go over the stuff. So 
you need to look at birth parents need to look at the classes that they're taking. That's not just, you know, comfort measures and, you know, hypnobirthing. Let's, we need to look at the whole scope of, of what your birth could be like. Now, granted, we don't get into the nitty gritty of things like we don't, but because there's too much nitty gritty. Yeah. There isn't enough time. No, but we try to alleviate fear and we try to give them a more realistic look about what birthing in a hospital could be like. And to, again, encouraging them to work with the staff to ask questions and be a part of that process. So yeah, that was my big speech. I'll get off my soapbox now. I I will say one thing, just going back to what you said about how your goal is to have um, a healthy experience, a healthy relationship, and that the nurses and doctors are there for the healthy mom, healthy baby, for sure, and the healthy outcome. Absolutely. But I will say for sure, like our team, all our physicians, like we definitely really want you to also walk away with that really amazing experience. Like regardless of how that delivery happened, whether it was a code OB or it was just a, a drive-in and you just barely got your pants off and you <laughs> baby walked out um we all want you to have that amazing experience and that's one of the main reasons that i've stayed at this hospital for so long and And i I think it's one of the reasons why i that i still work there like i will admit when i before i started working there teaching with you suzanne um I had stopped doing births there because it was like every birth I did ended in cesarean so it was like okay (laughs) i need to i need to take i don't know what I don't know why it's all like, it was like 10 in a row. I don't know why that was happening, but I knew that the only thing that I could control was myself. So I took myself out of the equation and I stopped doing birth there. And then when I started working with you, Suzanne, I was like, at least for the first little bit, I thought, oh God, I feel like I've sold my soul to the devil, like working here. But in the last few years, uh, uh-huh. I think probably in the last, you know, when I'm talking about, um, you know, things have markedly changed and it's been like, oh, things yes. have changed. Oh, so good. Um, I'm not going to name names. No, we won't. But, but we were told Kim and I, Kim and I were both told that the job of the hospital is to make sure that they've got a, a mother and baby who are alive at the end of the day. Wow. Remember when we had that big meeting, Kim, yes. and we were told, and so we just kind of like, okay. Oh. And then afterwards we were like fuming. Well, that's not good enough to just have people be alive and blah, blah, blah. But we were told by somebody very, very important in in the hierarchy of the labor and delivery floor, that that was the job of the hospital. And so I think the main message was that we needed to tone down our, whatever we were doing, are encouraging our, clients to ask questions questions and so on and and it, it kind of made it seem like we were working at cross purposes yeah. that the hospital's goal was to just have an, a, a mother and baby who were alive and we were trying to bring in like champagne and roses and candlelight or something and that those things weren't important and it really threw me off I remember being and I'm not a person who is afraid to speak I don't care who's sitting in front of me, but it threw me off. Cause I'm like, are we, are we working at cross purposes? And I like, I don't think so because the, when I first started teaching childbirth education classes, the name of the program was called the realities of childbirth. And I really appreciated the uh, that concept 
that my job was to talk about the realities of childbirth, not in a fearful way, but also not in a sugar-coated way either. And that has always been my goal. And that's filtered down into my doula work, that when I speak with my clients, I don't say to them, your goal should be to squat in a lavender field and let's work towards that in the, in, as, as much as we can. So even if you have to be in a hospital, let's pretend it's a field of lavender. No, 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 no. The goal of the birth experience needs to come from my clients. And sometimes I have said to people, well, if you want this and this and this and this, my friend, you need to take that birth out of the hospital because it's not going to happen. And it's not fair necessarily to set people up to think that they can have. So now we're not talking about respect, dignity, and all of that and being treated like a human being from that's just basic. But I'm talking about all the other things that people put in their long birth plans. Um, that some of those things as a doula, I need to say to them, you're going to get pushed back from the hospital for this. You're going, well, why? It's my right. I said, just no, it's not. <laughs> Some things are just not your right. It's your preference. And if you go into the hospital, the people who control that place also get a say. You get a say, of course, in how you're treated overall, but certain things you can't. Like, what if I want to give birth in the tub? Do you have a midwife? Yeah. Do you, do you, where are you? What hospital are you in? Sometimes that's simply not possible at, in this setting, and we have to tell people sometimes, and maybe that's the answer to what you were you were talking about, that doulas need to be realistic with their clients about the setting that they're giving birth in and how those settings work. And that's what's taught me a lot, teaching at the hospital and attending births at the hospital, is that this place works in a certain way. And if you're going to try to change that, you're, you're, it's going to be a, a problem. It's going to be really, really want to be doing that pushback in the middle of labor. Like, is this the hill you want to die on that you don't want this and you don't want that. And this is the way you want it. And so on. And again, some of those things are reasonable and some of them are not. I have, we've had clients who are asking for unreasonable things and it's the doula's job to talk to them realistically about what to expect at the hospital. I think that's where there can be a little bit of an issue sometimes if, the patient has a very specific wish list and they're not willing to hear the reasons why certain things are being recommended to them by their nurses or by the physicians. Um, there might be, and I'm like, I can't speak to this because I obviously I'm not there for every single doula experience, but sometimes there can be this idea that, well, the doula is there. So why can't, the doula let the patient know, like, this is for her own safety. This is for the baby's safety. Like, I hope that at least one person in this scenario can see where we're coming from. And you guys know your clients way better than we do. Right. So, and, and you can't control what their wish list is, um, but you can definitely educate and explain to them. We're not coming in to start an IV because we just want to, <laughs> because we really strongly think this is for the safety of them or their baby. Um, or also I feel like, and clients have their wish list, but they don't really see what we're seeing like five steps in advance, right? Yeah. Um, like I could meet you in triage and you never had high blood pressure, but you suddenly do. So five steps from now, I might be anticipating that you 
may need an epidural because if your blood pressure gets really, really high, we might suddenly discover that you're preeclamptic. Like these are not things um, that maybe even cross the patient's mind because they never had blood pressure, blood pressure issues before mm-hmm. they entered the scene. So I feel like sometimes we discover things and they're like, oh, you're the bad guy because now I have high blood pressure because of white coat syndrome, but it has nothing to do with that. You might've actually just been brewing this and it showed up today, the day that you met me. Um, you know, when you've come in with your wish list that didn't include getting an epidural or maybe even Magsolve, so. And, and I felt sometimes really it's, it's the doula's job really to be able to, to see and watch and navigate between, you know, the medical staff and the client to, because really they're the one person that's there that's seeing the whole picture. They're seeing what their client is really wanting, but they're also being able to see what the medical staff is seeing as well. Like we're not medical, we know this, but it isn't that, you know, having done this for 15 years, I can't, you know, look at a, uh, uh, a graph on the, on the monitor and go, Oh shit, that doesn't look so good. You know? Um, and then when the staff comes in and goes, Hey, this is, you know, this is what we're seeing. This is what's happening. And they turn to me and go, yeah, I think this is, this is, you know, this may not have been what we had wanted to do, but as they've said, you know, this is what they're seeing. So I think we need to, you know, we need to be open to this because it's really the doula sees it all the doula sees everything. And if they're paying attention, they're seeing everything and they can navigate and bridge that gap between the two, between the two worlds. And that makes for a good experience for everybody and makes for a good relationship between everybody as well. Yeah. Yeah. The doula is a big resource. Like, you know, you know who the patient is inside and out, I feel. And I feel like you can give us a great idea of how to approach a situation. And I, I really can appreciate what Susanna is saying about like going through a birth plan with a patient and seeing things that are just unrealistic. And I feel like there needs to be more of those types of conversations before they come into the hospital. And I feel like that would fix a lot of, um, or I guess that might help with a lot of disappointment yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that I've seen. Yeah. Um, it's just having those conversations with your clients well in advance that this is not realistic. This might not even be possible. And there are very fluid, ever-changing things that are going to happen during your labor experience. So be open to X, Y, Z. Being open. That's, that's the key. Yeah. And I think that's why I took issue when there was the commentary on Twitter about childbirth education classes, not preparing clients for a poor experience. That's the classes for education. It's, but it is that relationship with the doula. It is that preparation with your doula to sit down and say, well, great. So there's all those things that mean a lot to you in your birth experience. Like the, the things that we can share with the staff that are important to you that, you know, maybe you're, you don't want um, you're open to the use of epidural, but please don't offer. We'll ask when we're ready. That's a communication thing that is great for the staff to know and can be a positive experience for you. But let's talk about if something goes off to the right of what you were expecting. What does support look like like for you if your blood pressure skyrockets and the one thing that might really help you get through this birth and have a vaginal delivery is if you take that epidural mm-hmm. right away. Um, let's talk about how we can make that feel like an ex- a good experience for you. What do you need to hear from the staff to make it a good experience for you? Um, and even maybe how do you need to hear it? Like, do you need five minutes by yourself? What do you know about yourself? 
And that is a big part of that relationship building. And sometimes those are things we can share with the staff at the moment too, that this is just her, their communication style and here's what they need in order to just get ready for, for what you've brought in. Mm -hmm. It's not about having the ideal squatting in a lavender field feeling yeah. in the hospital. It's about mm -hmm. helping someone understand that support and a good experience can happen even when like everything you expected to happen absolutely does not happen that way. Yeah, yeah. I actually don't know anything about this Twitter thing to be really honest because I'm not a big social media person. So I don't know what the comments were and- Just I enjoy mean, it. <laughs> I highly, <laughs> highly respect and trust uh, Dr. Nirmala. I think she- Yeah, me too. She's yes. my favorite. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what, what was written on Twitter, but I, I trust her. I trust her with my own life. Like she is. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm and I mean, I love curious. her too. <laughs> I'm super curious to know why she, why uh, she felt that way. Because honestly, you know, we all know there are two dozen things that could possibly go wrong at a birth that needs intervention that could possibly send things sideways. Sure. We there, it's impossible for us and not good for us to cover all here are all the things that could possibly go wrong in your labor be prepared for high blood pressure this and that but that's not a good childbirth education method of like presenting things to people so i'm curious to know where that came from I, but i feel like we're preaching to the choir here i chose you to come on the podcast because you stuck out in my mind as somebody who <laughs> always had really good experiences with that hasn't been the case out all time can also list a bunch of not great experiences I've had with um, nurses. Some of them were like personality th things. Yeah. yeah. And some of them were straight up. What the hell, man? She said, wait to put your fingers <laughs> in her vagina and you didn't wait. Oh my. Oh yeah. I've seen that happen. Yes. Not cool. <laughs> yeah. Totally not cool. So, so yeah, I feel like we're preaching to, so what I want to know, what I would like to know as a doula, when I work, this kind of stuff doesn't happen very much anymore, but it might be very useful to me because I've been doing this a long time and I'm not easily intimidated, but there are newer doulas who um, are, and I was, I remember one time, one of the doctors at St. Mike's came and I was sitting in a chair and she came and stood right in front of me with her back and her ass right to my face. And spoke to the client and completely ignored my existence as if I was invisible. Yeah. Yep. Now, that too. <laughs> if that happened to me today, I would I would get up and simply walk around to the front of the bed and look at. And so she's in my face because I'm here, and that's all I that's all I need to earn validation of my existence is for you to see me. Um, but. What do you think, like in a situation like the one where the nurse did not listen to my, my client when she said, wait, just give me, like she was on the tail end of contraction or something and she didn't, she just put her fingers in there anyway. And even when my client said, I said, wait, she didn't remove her hand and apologize. She just kept going. Oh, no. oh, wow. Um, so that's an extreme example of something that I've seen, but there are a whole bunch of other small little things that... <sighs> make you furious and want to write a letter to somebody and then a, a bunch that just make you like roll your eyes. Yeah. So we've asked what can, you know, like what can we look at from your perspective to change our ways? What do you think 
we can do in those kind of situations where when we see shit like that and how do we decide when something is complaint worthy? That's a, that's a really good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm big on advocating for my own patients. Like that's not something I would ever do. I, I would hope that's not something any of my colleagues would ever do, but clearly there are circumstances that you've yeah. witnessed where these things have happened and it's so unfortunate. And and I can't speak to them because obviously I wasn't there and I don't know what the whole yeah. process was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was it that there was like a big fat D cell happening and they needed to get scalp stim? Like, I, I don't know what was happening in that situation, but I, my own practice, me as a nurse, me, Sabrina, like whoever's in the room is a person that deserves respect. I'm all about communication, whether you're the partner, you're your support person, whoever you are, that's privileged enough to be in the room, I'm going to speak to you as well as the patient, as long as the patient is okay with it. Um, and I just feel like communication is huge. Like I, I would ever examine a patient without getting their consent. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel like maybe those are situations that you need to pull the person aside outside of the room and just right there. Once it's happened, like don't wait a day or two where the person could potentially forget because they were tonight shift. Like if you see someone doing something that you think is unsafe or highly inappropriate, um, like pull that person aside and have that respectful conversation outside of the room, you know, in a private room, um, not at the nursing station. Like, I feel like those are big things too. Like, I feel like sometimes people forget and the nursing station is very public. And just because there's a plexiglass, it doesn't stop sound. It's not soundproof. And I feel like just people in general um, not specific to nurses or doctors or do it, just people. Like I feel like people need to sometimes be reminded. And I don't know if this is more concentrated in the last few years through the pandemic that people are just tired and grumpy, but I feel like people kind of sometimes need to be grounded and reminded like, hey, we're all here for one reason. Um, we're all on the labor unit for one reason. So let's be nice to each other because it's just going to make that 12 hours go by a lot longer if we're not. Um, so my recommendation to you, if you see a nurse or a doctor that's doing something that you don't think is appropriate or you don't think is safe or you feel that it violated your patient in some way, take them aside and have that conversation right there, right then. Like address it, address it right away. Don't wait on it, but definitely don't do it in front of the patient and don't do it at the nursing station pull them aside, pull them aside and have, have that respectful interprofessional communication. And that, you guys, those, those are the words, right? That? Respectful, interprofessional, like yeah. we're all on the same team here. We're going to, we're, I'm going to talk to you with respect. Let's let, let's try and make things better for the client. Right? Absolutely. Like that's what we're here for, right? Like that's right. I'm not there for 12 hours for myself. So <laughs> right. We're all here doing this job of having people birth safely and happily in as much as we can uh, achieve that goal. Do you feel comfortable doing that Steph? Would you feel comfortable pulling a, a nurse aside to say, Hey, yo, I'm, you know, I'm just curious about that little thing that you did. What was that? Can you explain to me? There why? are spaces in which I've, well, you guys already know, and that's what I guess it came up where I've, I've had to do that. Um, and it's just like a little reset. It's like, you know, just reminding you that, uh, you know, in this client's um, communication sheet was 
that what was really important for her is for her to have at least a good solid 60 seconds for her to get grounded before a vaginal exam because she has sexual trauma history. And, and you didn't wait on that and you overrode that. And I can see in my client that we're gonna have to undo this. And I, next time when obviously a vaginal exam needs to happen, let's just back up to that. And it was received very well. And this wasn't at St. Mike's, this is at another hospital. Things tweaking, things like that, I've been comfortable with. Um, I was wondering, Sabrina, because you spoke very clearly about this, I felt like perhaps, have you ever had that experience with a doula where, where you have had to be the one to kind of step out and say, hey, we need to work together here. I'm feeling like we're, we're you know, butting heads at all or? Um, okay, so one thing that really kind of is hard in general, like not just the doulas, but even with the doctors um, or other nurses. And I don't know if this is a me thing or if this is just across the board a nursing, but when I've worked so hard to get my patient to fully dilated, I want to push with them. Like that is my moment. Um, I'm not going to leave my shift at 7.30 if the head is crowning. I want to be there for that golden moment of glory where the baby's delivered. Um, so it's really hard for me when uh, the doula wants to push with the patient. I find that really frustrating and I get it because you guys are there for the labor support, but I feel like there is an art and a science around pushing and encouraging. And I really- Sorry, can you, can you explain? What do you mean push yeah, what with? what do you mean? Because <laughs> the doula is going to be there with- Yeah, 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 push. be there, be there. But what do, you, the... what do you mean push with? Oh, okay. Um, like I want it to be my voice that's guiding the pushing. Like I want to be the one that's um, positioning them for the pushing. Cause I use different positions. I don't, I know a lot of people like to just keep them um, with their legs on the paddles on the stirrups. I'm, I like to do side pushing. I like to use a bar. Like I like to kind of change it up depending on how the progress is going. I'll change the position. I'm not going to just stay stationary in one spot. So I like to be the one to decide based on the exam. Okay. So it's, feels like the baby might be OP. I think it'd be better if we pushed on your side. I want to set them up. I want to give them the teaching and tell them, okay, you're going to take a deep breath. You're going to do this. Like, I want to be the one to guide that pushing. And, and like, I want it to be my voice through the coaching. That's what I want. Um, but definitely, absolutely. If the doula is there, the partner's there, whoever is there, like get them involved, hold a leg, get the water, be involved, give that encouraging, you know, voice in the background, you're doing great, like, for sure, be involved. But for the, like, the primary voice, I love when it's, it's mine, like, even when another nurse comes in just to bring in the scale, and they come in and say, no, no, push harder, push harder. And I'm like, hold on, this is my moment with my patient, because I worked the entire shift to get them to fully, I, I want to push with them, like, and when I say I want to push with them, I mean, like, I want it to be my voice that they remember and they hear. And I find a lot of them, they'll look you dead in the face and they're just relying on you. And I love that. I'm like, you trust me and I've got you and I'll get you through this. Like, that's the best part is the delivery. Yeah. So I want it to be me. I <laughs> and I don't that. know. If I love this. I, so yeah. I love that, like all the things that you're sharing right now is almost like the flip side of what we said before, where you need to pull someone aside for something that might be inappropriate. This is a great opportunity to pull a doula aside and say, let's make a plan for this. Here are the tools that I utilize and what you can expect from me. What I would love from you is yeah. this. Is there anything I need to know about this client that I don't know yet that would really help 
when I'm, when I'm helping guide them through this, because, you know, sometimes you might have a client who had a previous, you know, hip dislocation. So you're going to yeah. use right side instead of left side, something the doula might be able to bring to it, but still while you're kind of being that voice and the doula is being the, the hydrator and yeah. the, and the, and the cold clother, you know, I think <laughs> this is a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I've had to say it. Like, I, I think I've learned as I've worked that it is good to have these conversations way before you actually start pushing. Cause I've been yes. in a situation yes. where the doula is kind of, or sometimes it's a midwife or even a physician comes in and they start pushing and, and it's, you know, it's different for each person. Like this is just, this yeah. is just a me thing. Like personally, I'm so invested in this that I can't, I really want to be a part of this. Like I'll feel way more satisfied with the job that I did. If I know that I, played this part in being the voice that guided them through this. So I've had times where I've had a doula that does the pushing, like actually is that voice. And I've had to say, Oh, you know what? Can I just show you um, one thing outside really quick? And then I pull them out and I tell them like, do you mind if I'm the one that actually talks them through this and you help support the leg or whatever it is, because I don't want to offend somebody in the room. I definitely, it can be sort of disrespectful to, to have that conversation in front of a patient when the patient's trusting both of you now in this very intense, profound moment. So that's something I've learned. I've definitely learned that because there were a few times where I've had people, even partners, I've had to tell partners like, hold on, hold on. I just want mom to hear my voice just so it's not confusing. Um, and I've had to like pull them aside to have that conversation sometimes outside because it can be confusing. You get one person, whether it's a doctor or a nurse or a doula or midwife saying, you're doing really great. And I'm the one that's examining them with the, with the push. And I'm like, no, actually you're not doing really great. Hold <laughs> on a second. Let me tell them that they're doing great or not. Yeah, Let me tell them that they're, yeah, they need to take a new breath or whatever it is that that needs to be done. You know, it might be helpful if. Because I could totally see this happening. Totally. Because a lot of doulas are like, we all have our own idea of what, how things should be and how yeah. things are supposed to work. Right. And there is a lot of thinking um, among doulas and a lot of people that pushing on your back is the worst. It's horrible. It's bad. You should avoid it at all costs. And I've seen in the hospital that people are lying on their back. The doctor comes and says, nope, you have to lie on your back. Or they've called in another doctor. One time it was Dr. Dr. Chandra Chakran, Dr. Normala. She came in and she said, lie on your back. Lie on your back and do this. And I was like, what? Lie on your back? And that's what she needed. That there is a benefit to lying on your back. And a lot of people don't know that. The whole physics of how a baby comes out, et cetera, et cetera. And using different positions. I think it would be great if a nurse before pushing started said, here's how pushing is going to go. Here's how we're going to work together yeah. to make pushing work. And you lay out that, that there might be different positions, including lying almost on your back. If certain things, because they might've had conversations with their doula prenatally where they were told lying in your back is the worst thing that you must avoid at all costs. And if that's not true, then, then the clinical person needs to say, sometimes we might need you to lie on your back because whatever, whatever those reasons are. And I'm going to use my voice and here's what I want you to do and you to do. Laying out exactly what is to be expected, I think can be very, very helpful and, um, and really actually makes the, uh, 
the, the birthing person feel more secure yeah. and safe because they know who they're going to be looking at, like the maestro in an orchestra, right? <laughs> that's, yeah. That's yeah. The, you're doing your thing and everybody's got their job, but everybody's focused on the maestro. Yeah. And I think that would be really helpful. Do you guys typically tell them not to push on their back? Like, is that a thing that no, uh, well, I don't anymore, but I know that it's a thing when people are talking, you know, there are doulas, there are not these doulas, but there are doulas <laughs> okay. who, who do say things like, you know, avoid, you know, you don't want an epidural. And so their goal is to steer people away from an epidural, or you, you should try to squat at all costs. You should try to squat and birthing on your back is a bad thing and blah, blah, blah. And and so on. So there are people, there are um, doulas support people who do have those ways of thinking. Um, But I've seen way too much in my life to know that, yeah, that semi-seated position can actually work really, really well. And it, that with sideline when there's an epidural in play can work really, really well. So why would I say you can't do that? Like, Mm -hmm. I, I, I pushed out three babies that way myself. So who the hell am I to say it doesn't work? I've seen, I've seen I've a, a client of mine who really, really wanted to squat. And so that was like, okay, like beforehand, she goes, that's what I want to do. That's how I want to have my baby. And so she got all set up to squat. Baby's heart rate plummeted mm-hmm. in the yeah, squat. Same, same thing. Squatting went right out the window in five seconds. Yeah. So yeah. And so I felt like, shit, we didn't really prepare for that to happen because the message was squatting is the best. Squatting is the best. Squatting, you've got to try to squat. you got to try to squat. And squatting absolutely was the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So well, uh, yeah. Be open. That's the, that is the message. Be open gonna work. to all of it too. As long as it's working, then it's good. Then it's okay. My big thing is safety. Like whatever is safest for mom and baby. Uh-huh. And that's the whole picture. That's epidural, that's blood pressure, that's IV, that's all of it, right? So whatever's safest um, in the clinical picture and in the environment as well. Um, but I do have a question. This has been a burning question for years, actually. Um, I have a lot that was of- your chance. Yeah, yeah. So I've had a lot of patients that have taken the birth class with a doula and I'm not sure if it's one of you guys or if it's from uh, like somewhere else outside in the world, but a lot, a lot of patients say that, oh, I was told in the birthing class that I shouldn't get an epidural until I'm about five to six centimeters. And I always wondered about that. I don't know that that's a birthing class thing. I know that there's some evidence around it for someone in spontaneous labor in regards to when you're most likely for the, the epidural to impact the consistency of your labor but it's or the pace uh, of your labor yeah it's just information about the impact of adding anesthesia but it's i've never heard of it in a prenatal class yeah so i've well, had a lot i'll say of well i will say that that there totally could be people coming from my class who might have heard some version of that because i was told by the nurse leader manager more than one time, more than one, one, it was J- Janet, something or rather forget her last name, okay. Janet, and then Anna, um, we've talked about that and said, you need to talk about when that the best time to have an epidural, because people are constantly asking that, when should I have my epidural? When should I have my epidural? What's the best time? And she said, when labor is well established, 
when labor is well established and the sweet spot is between five to seven, and I quote, quote, the sweet spot is between five to seven centimeters when contractions are consistent and regular. So I've, I have been saying that. Oh, now you're saying that's not true? I don't know if it's true or not true, but I just know that there are a lot of patients that come in because they now need to be induced and that wasn't part of the plan. So they didn't come in in spontaneous labor. They came in because their water broke. It's been 12 hours and there isn't any contraction to be seen in sight. And now we have to augment or we have to actually induce them with moxitocin. And we're not going to deny them an epidural when they're two centimeters, hundred percent of face. Yes. We've also told them that that too, you can get right? an epidural time you want. Yeah. And so like, this is where I feel like there's a bit of a disconnect um, and not just patients have doulas, just like patients in general that read it somewhere or heard it somewhere, but I'm told like, it's going to stop my labor if I get an epidural too early. And yes, there is, there is such a thing as getting an epidural too early for sure. Um, but when it comes to spontaneous labor versus an induction or versus us being committed to the labor because you're GBS positive. And we're gonna continue giving you labor regardless of if your contractions space out or not after you get an epidural, because we don't wanna give you enough Penji to kill a whale kind of thing. You know, like there's so <laughs> many things that can change when you get your epidural. Like we've had patients that have vaginismus and can't have an exam and they get an epidural at one centimeter, but we don't even know they're one centimeter because we can't examine them. So no. like- and I, and I think that's one of the things too, is that people, this happens all the time in the classes. People will say, well, what if X, Y, Z? And you're like, mm -hmm. okay, well, okay. First off, the chances of X, Y, Z happening is like, <laughs> I don't even know. Right. And I can't go into for you every single scenario, but what I can tell you is this, when you want an epidural, that's when you get an epidural. Yeah. When yes. you, and I, I've actually started because of COVID and sort of the, um, the slight longer delays with putting on like PPE and all these things. Yeah. Yeah. I've said, look, when you get to a point where outside of a contraction, you say, I don't think I can do this anymore. Mm -hmm. That's when you ask, because you've still got a little bit left in the tank to get you to when the anesthesiologist comes, but mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're approaching done. So let's do that. I, I will. I a hundred percent agree with that. The only thing I would add to that for my site where I work, it's a trauma hospital. Um, so I always tell them you want to ask for it. If you know it's something that you're considering, right. ask for it when you feel like you can do this for at least an hour. Right. So you're not hanging on by a thread because if you feel like you've gotten to that point, like you mentioned where, okay, between contractions, I think like now I need it. Yeah. But you're waiting I, I, I freeze it in. so it's like I don't know how much more I can do. So they yeah, still so have some more that they can do. Just based on my experience with the whole trauma situation, like yeah. it is inevitable that someone comes in in hot labor on a Friday night and they want an epidural yesterday, and everyone is at the trauma bay and they're not getting their epidural yesterday. They're waiting maybe 30 minutes or 40 minutes. So mm -hmm. I always tell them like well in advance, even before an induction has started, or just when they've come in in spontaneous labor and they're like, I might want an epidural. Well, just to let you know, it is a trauma hospital, share yes. anesthesia with everybody. So if you feel like it's something you might want, I always say to ask for it when you feel like you can do this for at least another hour. So if you're waiting, you can do this. Like you've got that coping left in you. 
I, I do always encourage them to ask the nurse. The nurse can give you a really good idea of the lay of the land about what's going on outside of your birthing room. Yeah. And she'll be able to tell you, absolutely, somebody's here, can be here in five minutes or stuff's happening and yeah. it's not going to happen for another 45 minutes. Or and they so come and they literally are setting up their tray and they get paged to a trauma and they're gone. So you still need to have that hour's worth of coping left in you because they might not reappear for a little bit longer. Okay. So Just to have that conversation so that expectations aren't mm -hmm. so high. Well, it's funny. You know, a lot of times the, the questions that we get in class is when is it too late? Yeah. Always. That. Always. That's <laughs> when is it too late? When is it too late to get an epidural? Yeah. Too late. <laughs> and I tell them my story. It's too late when the baby is about to be crowning. Yeah, it's too late. <laughs> the baby's on the inside. It's never too late yeah. to ask, but I can't guarantee if you're going to get it. <laughs> yeah. I always say, I always say, there's a there's a time when it doesn't make sense. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like the end. Speaking time time wise, if your baby's going to be born before the things put in, it's too late. It yeah, you need to take do your delivery for you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I have to tell you that five to six minute thing, just this, even just this past, the past two years in particular, um, and I don't know if it's just with people's ability to Google. Um, yes. oh that's what I was thinking. I didn't think it was necessarily a prenatal class thing, but it has really come up and it's always, so I'm told I should get, or I've read that I should get it between five and six centimeters, that that's the best. And I do always have to say in a spontaneous labor, if your goal is to have less augmentation, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But again, even that's not, can, um, it's not a guarantee. 100%. Either. It's not yeah. a guarantee. So maybe we need to just stop talking about how many centimeters and all that kind of stuff and say, ask for an epidural when you feel like you have one hour left in your coping tank. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you start. I think too, like it's dependent. Are you telling them this when they're at home or they're in triage versus they're already admitted? Because if they're in triage and they have, only an hour left in their tank, but they're at fingertip, then, then there can be a conversation around giving you something else to hold you over until, you know, your cervix has kind of declared itself to get an epidural. Like there's so many variables that, like you said, it's impossible just, to go through all of those things exactly. in a birthing class right. with one client. Yes. I think it's important to just have that conversation. I think it would be easier to bridge the gap between maybe the nurses and the doulas communication with the patients, because once we've met them on scene, like if I've met them in a labor room, they've already surpassed that point where you need to have that conversation about whether or not you can get an epidural, right? Because now you're in a room, so you should yeah. be able to get it. Um, but if I'm meeting you in triage, it's a totally different ballgame. So I think just to have that conversation with your clients that, you know, there are times where it's not too early to ask for an epidural, but the nurses and the doctors will let you know based on the clinical picture if it's appropriate and take it from there and just know that it, if it is appropriate, to ask for it when you feel like you can still do it for at least an hour because you might be waiting. Mm -hmm. And one last clinical kind of thing before we wrap up, cause it is 1215. So you mentioned maybe the clients in triage their fingertip, but they're saying they want an epidural. So you start discussing with them about other stuff that they could yeah. get. So yeah. we know that that other stuff is like narcotics or something, right? Yeah, typically. Yeah. So, um, has this changed? Uh, and I want to know so that I can modify or not my, the way that I, what I tell my, my people in my class that those kind of medications are only offered very early on because we don't want babies born with, you know, like morphine or whatever yeah. in your system. Yeah. 
And so if you're, if you are past a certain number of centers, if your labor is advanced enough, then you wouldn't be offered right. those things. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that and that's again, too, like, is this someone obviously that doesn't have a history of substance use? Um, is this somebody that's not a multip and the Which I know St. Mike's deals with a lot of that. Like we have a very diverse patient population. So we're really careful about what we're offering to who. Um, and the other thing too is like, as you know, multips typically do go faster than primips usually, but nothing is ever guaranteed. And if you're a multip that's fingertip at paper thin, like that's also a time where we might say, well, see, you know, you might need to ambulate for a couple hours and see what happens um, just for that safety piece, because we don't want to be giving narcotics on board. And if the baby's born within four hours, now we've affected how the baby could potentially be breathing. Um, so yeah, those, those conversations have to happen typically in triage or before they get admitted somewhere on the labor unit. And that's the physician that's going to ultimately make that decision. I mean, if I'm the nurse in triage, I'll offer suggestions to the doctor based on the patient that I'm dealing with. Like she's a primip. I examined her myself. The service is really long. Um, this is her tracing. This is how proper her contractions are. What do you think if we offered Nubin and Gravel? And then ultimately it's up to the physician to decide if this is the appropriate like plan of care. Got it. Like four hours. And in four hours, if the cervix hasn't done anything, like I find that those narcotics are the ones that kind of will inevitably declare whether or not you're in labor. Because if in four hours it has, hasn't touched you, you're probably actually going into really good labor. But if it snowed you and you wake up and you're still the same, it was probably just some ugly prodromal labor. It's just there to torture you. And that's it. <laughs> and that's why they make babies so cute. <laughs> right. And then you're totally, let me tell you how much I love, I, I am a prodromal labor person, all four fucking oh, kids. No. <laughs> and I loved my narcotics and my gravel probably more than I should but I tell you it is what kept me from going fucking insane so I am so glad that mm -hmm. I, I know when I talk to so many of my clients they're like oh but it's drugs it's drugs it's drugs it's like okay you need to be functional mm -hmm. when you're when you're laboring when your baby comes and there's a reason why they will give it to you at this time now mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to run around promoting and, you know, quite often, especially with midwives and stuff, they'll just say, yeah, you know, yeah. pop a couple gravel, you know, because yeah. often gravel will do it itself. And it's the same thing. If, if this is prodromal labor, you'll have a nice nap. You'll wake up and want to eat something and you'll be okay. Yeah. If this is labor labor, you're going to get a good hard sleep and wake up to that one contraction that is like, holy shit, let's go. Let's go. You know, yeah. it's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Good Absolutely. stuff. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This has been so great. Sabrina, your wisdom has been amazing to listen to. We are so grateful for you spending your precious day off talking <laughs> to us. And we are going to spread all the news about how doulas can be better uh, collaborators with nurses and hospitals. Thank you. I, so I almost miss being in hospital again. I know you almost, almost made me feel like Oh, wow. I can't wait for my next birth at St. Mike's to put all of this into play. <laughs> I haven't been there so long that when you said, you know, there's plexiglass around the nurse's station, I'm like, what? Oh yeah. Cause of COVID. But I haven't, cause I haven't been there. Haven't been, no, haven't been there. Didn't, haven't yeah. set foot in the hospital since, <laughs> since, um, uh, Maybe July when I went there. When we went there to get our stuff for the classes, yeah, yeah. so yeah. now we teach at virtually. Right. So we get the stuff out of the cupboard. And that's the last time that I was in that building. 
I think so, that's one thing that I miss the most about just pre-COVID days is being able to like the patient being able to see your face and your expression, especially when it's something yeah. really scary that's happening. All they have yeah. are your eyes now, which I don't feel like it's enough. Yeah, it's not enough. Before, it's just not. not. And like, yeah, you can hold someone's hand and you can speak to them, but it's just not the same. I yeah. really miss miss having the pre-mask days. Like I want to go back to that. Show your whole face. We'll get there. We'll get there with all of our hard, hard work. Yeah. Yeah. But you'll see me, Sabrina. I'm still yeah. working. <laughs> and, and you'll see me next year. I have some St. Mike's births lined up for next 2022. So, and I've decided to I'm retired from in person. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Yeah. I'm not able to do it anymore. Yeah. Well, I look broken. forward to seeing those of you who will be on site. <laughs> Excellent. This was so much fun. I, I really appreciated everything that you said. Thank you so Pleasure. much. Pleasure. I'm really happy. I got a chance to talk to you guys. Awesome. Perfect. So, um, Take it easy. This is the end of our podcast today, people. Don't forget to do what you know you should be doing, which is rate, review, and subscribe. Feel free, Sabrina, to go back and listen to all. How many? How many? Episodes? This is number 150. Yeah. 150 episodes. <laughs> I listened to two last night. <laughs> if you go back to the beginning, you'll hear all our birth stories. We have many, many birth stories between the three of us. So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah I most definitely will. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. You take care of yourselves, everybody. And peace out. Bye. Bye. Bye.